Welcome to Built in the Bluegrass, a podcast dedicated to cool stuff made in Kentucky. We want to share with you how it was made, why it was made, and the story behind it. And now, here's your host. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Built in the Bluegrass. Really excited today because we have one of the more complicated conversations we're probably going to have. It's not just your typical, here's what we take a raw material and turn it into a product. We are speaking today with uh, Scott Laskowski from Madisonville, Kentucky, who will be talking about his company, Organolock, and the many different things that they do with the different products, waste materials, et cetera, byproducts of certain manufacturing industries and the where they end up and how they're repurposing them. So uh, I'm Griffin Meredith here today. We'll get started with, you know, Scott, you know, to get us started, just tell us a little bit about Organolock, tell us a little bit about Scott you know, what it is that you do every day and, you know, a little bit about your background. All right. Thanks for having us on here, by the way. Um, background very quickly, I come from an entrepreneurial family that um, spans across product lines that include um, sawmills, um, animal liquidation technology, burning technology, drying and repurposing of biomass technology. So we've concentrated very heavily over those last 10 years on uh, trying to find best use of recyclable materials or waste materials, a better way to put it, and somehow get some dollar value attached to that while we do good things with it. So on a basis, that's what we do. So are you, just a quick question before we get started, are you incentivized to do that? So, I mean, I would think that this is something that government or, you know, in the non-NGO world would take an interest in figuring out ways to make this work. Do you do you get incentivized for that? Or is this just a, hey, buddy, fill up your bootstraps, and if you can make a business out of it, great. And if you can't, you, know, you can't. That's a great question. Um, it pretty much has been bootstrap because we find that in this world, most uh, in that world already know it all. And there certainly can't be anything big or uniquely new in this industry. And uh, we find that largely true um, be, for a lot of people, but for us, we had a lot of good toys to play with, you know, between making burners that would make biochar and making that and, uh, make heat for process heat purposes, making animal liquidators so we can convert Asian cart problems into a potential profitable mode. Um, but you know, long story short, if we, we had to do this ourselves for the most part, there are grants out there, other people are chasing them but nothing that just lands in your lap when it comes to pushing this technology forward. Cool. So walk me through a typical day. So whenever you're not just a typical day, but what it is that you're really doing, you know, you're taking and, you know, I don't know that we really need to go into the details of every chemical you know, sure. taking it from this to that, but what are you taking? That's the problem. And what are you repurposing to? That's a solution. All right. Um, we got drug into this through multiple areas of our, in the US, for instance, people trying to get rid of Asian carp, that's a big one around here, horse manure, chicken manure, uh, animal carcasses in general, um, all considered waste. And everybody's trying to find an opportunity to do that. And with our equipment, we have we've uh, tried really hard to find responsible ways to use this, combine them in a way that become money makers. So, between our alkaline hydrolysis technology, we'll go deeper into that right now, but we can melt animals into a very good liquid fertilizer. 
and then we can blend animals with biomass through our technology to turn it into a good dry fertilizer. Any combination of the above then becomes plant food for your um, raised beds or a greenhouse or your flowers and, and or in our bigger scheme of things, we're trying to chase fixing farmland. And we can talk more about that in a little bit. But that's the big goal. So, yeah, I can remember, you know, we've had several factories that we work in. And whenever we talked about, you know, the heating systems that they had in their facilities, they went to the local McDonald's and got the grease left over from, you know, their fry tanks. And they got their fuel for free as long as they had a way to get it from here to there. You know, I'm not trying to paint every picture in that same. It's as simple as getting it from here to there, and then it's, it becomes a fuel. But, you know, tell us, you know, then as easy to understand as possible, what that waste, as you call it, comes as a byproduct and turns into, you know, the fertilizer or whatever it may be. What problem is that also fixing? Well, let's start at a bigger picture. Everybody's talking about CO2 problems, carbon sequestration. So our technology for combusting or burning these products allows us to make a very high quality biochar. For those who don't know what that is, look it up and you'll spend next month looking on the internet about it. Uh, it's a great soil amendment, but it's also pure carbon being sequestered and put back in the soil. It's one of the world's largest opportunities to capture carbon in the form of biomass, create biochar and put it back in soil. So that becomes step one of what we're doing. And then we take the heat from making that biochar to um, dry or pasteurize any combination of the other ingredients to turn them into what we need to do. So it's, it's a two-piece thing. We're capturing fuels of a lot of different kinds. It can be wood chip, manures, uh, grasses, things like that to make heat, turn it into biochar, and then we use that heat to dry and process these final ingredient, ingredients that are worth something and allowing us to fix soils. So why do I, if, if I'm making whatever widget or whatever you know, durable or non-durable good it is that I'm trying to produce, why am I not trying to use something that has value in your mind within my own facility? Or why am I not trying to package that and find it as a way? Is it I'm making so much money doing my widget and I don't need to think about it differently? Is it just a status quo that no one's used to? Find you know, What is the angle that you're coming in with and why aren't people doing it themselves? That's a great one because we thought we when we started this business, everybody would jump in. And then you run into the practical issues. Um, for instance, if you go to Europe, they've had an industry built about around wood chips and sawdust 20 years ahead of the U.S. And over there, you can go out and buy graded wood chip, just like you can buy graded gasoline or you know wood pellets or things like that. Here in the U.S., still no no standards. So if you want to buy my equipment to heat your facility, and you expect to go out somewhere and buy that fuel, it is not available here in North America. So you say your yeah. equipment. So to be clear, you also, you're not just talking about this byproduct. You also create the equipment that takes the raw material or the waste that you've turned into a raw material. You, you all produce equipment that someone could use to put into application, whatever it is you're talking about today. This isn't just working within their realm. You're also, I guess, selling them a product that they can use what it is you make every day. Is that true? That's true. That's where we start. We're actually an OEM, original equipment manufacturer. So when we started this segment of our life 12 years ago, we manufactured the bioliquidator. You can look that one up online. 
that's the one that's the alkaline hydrolysis for liquidating critters. And then we started across a line called the bio burners. We make three different sizes of burners that can burn biomass in a lot of different configurations to make heat. So you could you could heat a small building or your house or your wood kilns for drying, things like that. So that was the industry we chased. And that matured into making some biomass processing equipment as well, where we can uh, dry and grind and pasteurize these products into the perfect configuration to turn them into a marketable or, or value-added product. So yes, we start out as the manufacturer, then we use our own machines to make these products. And to my knowledge, nobody in the country does that but us, or mostly for around the world. So going back to these, uh, you know, the facilities that you're taking this waste from, you know, it sounds to me that if I'm able to repurpose every product you've got, it seems like a simple fish in a barrel, you know, sales mentality. Like, here, you've got this. I've got a machine that costs X. You can, within six months, get your value of buying my piece of equipment to put something into utilization within a short period of time. How come that didn't take place or has it? It's in the works, but it's different than your typical path in the soil industry, let's say. Um, for instance, if you go buy miracle Grow or Pro-Mix or some of these others out there, they can have their products packaged and sold and delivered short distances to outlets because they're all sharing the same packaging places. They're starting with the same materials. They just have a little different mix. We like to say same pig, different lipstick. You know, it's just the, they're all sharing the same resources for distribution. What we do is patent painting and totally unique in that by grabbing these waste materials and having to process them, nobody else does that. So at that point, I've got to have the capital and the resources to build these systems and start planting them around the country uh, ideally within 200 mile radius of your final product or your, your customer. And that all takes time and it takes a lot of capital. And as we are also coming out of COVID, which last year was pretty devastating to the equipment side of our business, but we're finally crawling back out of that. Um, it's, we're just growing. I mean, we're not there yet, but we're on the way. We've got a lot of investors looking at what we're doing. In fact, we have them coming in Monday. Um, to start looking at putting these things across the country where there are people centers, you know, population groupings, there will always be these waste streams that we're talking about chickens. And there's usually biomass around those areas that need to be gotten rid of chicken manure. Uh, we're, you know, Pennsylvania is a huge one because of all the chicken stuff. So we've actually been working with government programs and Chesapeake, sustainable Chesapeake to figure out how to get the emissions dealt with for burning chicken manure so they quit putting it on land. And I know I'm getting a lot of word wordy here, but it's a huge, huge um, problem slash potential. And it, it, it's just not one that you can jump into overnight. A lot we have to do. So it's not as simple as, hey, we've got the, you know, I know there's a land of lakes near you, a land of lakes facility down the street, and we've got this much that's left over or the Tyson plant down in wherever, Western Kentucky, we've got this much left over. We're going to, uh, package it, burn it, get it to Home Depot. There's a lot more to it than that because we are unique in what we're doing. But the opportunity is phenomenal. But when you're a small company in Western Kentucky, bootstrapping this and having already spent a ton of money on it, now to go to that final stage and get it capitalized, that's where we are. And nice. we'll get there. 
So let's, yeah, that's a great transition. So you do it in Kentucky and you know, presumably you, you're from Kentucky, been here for a while, whatever you mentioned your family earlier. What makes it, what makes Kentucky a place for this? Why does Western Kentucky the right place? You, you mentioned Pennsylvania, you mentioned population centers, you know, you're not exactly in the middle of a population center. What makes it work out of Kentucky what is it about your location? You know, is it the people? Is it the cultural? Is it the work ethic? Is it the, the idea, you know, people that you run into? What makes it work here? I have to go back in history a little bit for that. We, with our previous company called Woodmiser Portable Sawmill Product Line, um, that was in Indianapolis. Um, I started a new branch of that company down here to sharpen blades for our sawmills. So we moved to Madisonville because that's where my wife is from. Born and raised, great place to raise the family, um, great people. Um, so we decided to stay here. There's really nothing keeping me here in terms of the best business place. It's a good place, that's not a problem. But we stay here now because number one, for zoning issues, uh, acquiring building materials, believe it or not, is easier here than it was in Indianapolis. There's a pretty good infrastructure here because of the coal mines that allow me to be an OEM and get my R&D work done very easily and very quickly. Until recently, with the um, situation going on around the country, it was easy to get good labor. That's getting tough. But um, it's been a good, great place to, number one, raise a family, to run a business, and it's central enough that within that 200-mile radius, I've got more than I can. I can't make enough to support the market I would have around here. Let's put it that way. So you mentioned, uh, you didn't say the word private equity, but you mentioned investors. Is there not a market? Uh, you know, one of the things we're talking about more and more is every economist you talk to seems to think that there's going to be post you know, COVID-19 era, there's going to be a sense of nationalism. You know, there's going to be a little more thinking of, you know, and for those of you who may not know exactly what I mean when I say nationalism is we take care of ourselves. You know, we don't need to be dependent on getting this from there. Yes, you may be able to produce this cheaper in China. Um, and it's not, you know, this isn't like some America first or anything of that nature, other than supporting your own. That could be Western Kentucky supporting a community. That could be Western Kentucky supporting the state of community, supporting the region. It could be someone in Iowa supporting the entire nation. Point being, we produce, we do things for you know, ourselves. Is there not going to be additional focuses, focusing on things that can get done more efficiently local versus, hey, let's just get a, whatever is the cheapest product out there. There's always going to be a value position. I'm not saying there's not. But is there not going to be a focus from private equity or from investors or from people who want to look into this, whether it's businesses trying to take, and not even to mention the whole green movement and things like that. So what does that landscape look like? Do you feel it is going to improve people are looking at this more you know i'm not trying to get your trade secrets here but you know what are the what do you think the position looks like going forward well if i if i'm understanding the statements right our position is to do everything as much as possible local keep it here in the u.s create opportunities for small entrepreneurs which is what we did with our previous business we had sawmills all over the world now um creating entrepreneurs what we would like to do and what we're doing is strategically position, you know, 50 of these manufacturing plants at a minimum across the country near strategic locations. So we can always use local waste streams, local people, take advantage of um, these entrepreneurs that already have some infrastructure in place but need more to do. 
and build a highly profitable and nimble business model that lets us meet the needs of the consumer and then long-term the farm industry to our agriculture industry to fix farmlands. I don't know if that answered your question, but yeah, local and small entrepreneurs all over the place instead of big ones here and there. I just wanted to get your opinion if there was a renewed focus or you thought there would be shortly on you know, businesses like this, which are trying to, again, there's the green aspect of we want to take our waste and put it in a byproduct into something useful. But the sense of that we're going to want to produce our things ourselves, so that would mean more of what you're talking about. Yeah, we fit extremely well into the green mentality. It really doesn't get much better than what we're doing because we not only, you know, sequestering carbon and we're using waste streams, we use the heat that we create from making carbon. It's what we would call a virtuous circle um, and using stuff that's not being used now. I mean, we're carbon negative in a big way and creating opportunity to put a lot more carbon back in the soil just by creating healthy soil. Microbes take care of that for us. So, yeah. Again, I hope I'm answering your question, but there's yeah. an opportunity to be great here in a big way. Yeah, that that's what I just wondered what that landscape looked like, and if there wasn't more people looking to invest in those things. So, you mentioned farming you know, then and a, and a little bit before, and some of our other you know, guests that we've had on have talked about uh, the efficiencies that have happened in farming with you know the production per acre, you know, the uh, technological advances that have made. Kentucky, you know, our region, produce more, you know, compared to 10 years ago. So talk a little bit about the inefficiencies you see in farming. I mean, everybody knows there's been consolidation in the, you know, the way it was 70 years ago is not the case today. You know, what are the, what are the problems you see and what are some ways that you're looking to, to fix it? And tell us, yeah, give us a little background on why you see it as a problem. I think if you just stick around a little bit, go back to um, the U. United Nations uh, climate report last year is a good reference point to go back to. You would think you would be hearing about smog and cars and all that kind of stuff with CO2 issues. But if you look at the basis for their article was we have to figure out how to get more carbon back in the soil, which is kind of a surprise. You wouldn't think that would be the answer. Well, they say that because if you create healthy soil, you, number one, we can feed the people that are about to explode on this planet. And then you also create a carbon sink that nature does by putting the carbon back in the soil if you bring it back to life. The challenge with the industry today is, well, first off, they're doing really wonderful things in terms of technologically, mathematically, and mapping with GPSs, learning how to manage their land better. That part's good, and they're, they're eking out some more yields. But if you really want to increase yield and deal with all the other issues, you've got to get carbon back in the soil. And this is a much bigger conversation than we can talk about here. But the question becomes, how do you do that when synthetic fertilizers that we use today do not feed the soil? And that goes back to Haber-Bosch technology created 120 years ago. And if anybody likes to read and if they're interested, go read a book called The Alchemy of Air. It's a, it's a eye-opener in the world of where we're in trouble with nitrogen. So let's not go too deep into the science side of that, but the real issue is we've got to get the right components back in the soil to fix it, and conventional farming does not do that, and that's what we're working on. Okay, so what, briefly, as briefly as you can, what are you working on? We're working on 
technology that feeds microbial life in the soil. So you hear a lot of people talking about putting bacteria micro back in the soil, but they never talk about how to feed it because the nitrates and things like that, that uh, you use in today's technology don't feed microbes and by extension then they kill microbes. And when you eliminate the microbes from the soil, um, they can't release the nutrients that are there um, and you end up with this spiraling problem that we run into where you've got depleted soil now. I mean, it goes back into the main reason why we don't um, till in carbon from last year, you know, the, the stovers and things like that, um, is because the carbon and nitrogen ratio related to this problem of nitrogen. So we're making this special food. And the question is, where do you get the nitrogen? It comes from the animals. And so that's the only cheap source left that we've found to, to get the right kind of nutrient. Everything else is too expensive. So you're taking the animal byproducts or the animal waste and turning it into a soil additive that is m more than plentiful to go across the farming acres. Because if you look, anybody's on an airplane and you go anywhere across the Midwest, you see a lot of land. So in that land, you're, you think there's enough of the waste byproducts to to, I guess, distribute that to farmable land to make this a more efficient process? It's a reachable goal to do a, a large percentage of it. For instance, we worked with Ecuador um, on a program where they needed to get rid of the offal, O-F-F-A-L, it's the leftovers from the tuna industry. Ecuador feeds China. China's got these huge facilities in there, and they have multiple semi-loads of fish waste every day. It has to go somewhere. It's perfect for this technology we're talking about. They have nowhere to put it, no way to use it, so it's going to landfill. They're not allowed to put it in the ocean. Total waste. But it could be making, yeah, a lot of farmland here. Around here in Kentucky, we could be doing significant amount of acreage coverage. And if you start going with Chicago and the eastern seaboard and Florida and all these places where there are population centers, there are always animals and animal waste that can be harvested, but we don't, we just don't talk about it. It's kind of a, we call it tragic to magic. You got all this tragic stuff going on and things being hidden and dumped here and there. And it turns to magic if you use it right. So what waste is the biggest problem? You know, do you consider it all just a problem whenever you're taking something and there's a byproduct that has some utilization from whatever we use it is today, which obviously landfill's not, that's, I guess that's a zero on the reuse scale, but what waste do you see as a biggest problem? Well, the USDA would tell you it's manure, especially chicken manure. It's over applied in, in a lot of states, Pennsylvania being one of them. They're, that's the source of the uh, water runoff problem in the Chesapeake Bay. So there's a lot of effort going into manure management through the USDA and the NRCS. So we're part of that circle where we have testing going along to support that because if I want to manage that, I have to burn it. I have to have good emissions. These days, everybody's all freaking out about that. So, um, but manure would be number one. You have some biomass waste that aren't necessarily a problem, but they're an opportunity where people are trying to figure out what to do with it. It's, it's these, the scrap off of the sawmill, for instance. Um, those sawdust streams are typically a problem to get rid of. For me, they're a major component of what I need to make this product. 
but is zero cost materials and turning them into value added. Yeah. And so my question, uh, you hit a nail on the head of what I was going for here. I see manure as my goodness. I don't even know the quantities in which it would be produced on an everyday basis. I would think that the, you know, the leftover sawdust from a sawmill pales in comparison from a tonnage or whatever you look at. Maybe I'm wrong, but I would think it pales in comparison from a size perspective to that. So is that, is that true? And does size really matter or is just the, the negative effects of it that is the biggest problem? Uh, the negative effects are probably the bigger problem because, again, with depleted soil, it doesn't work right. So when they do put down chicken manure on an area that's had it for a long period of time, you can get away with some things for a few years. But you go down south, for instance, and you have an overabundance of phosphorus in the soil. It's just been applied too much, and they can't do it anymore. they got to find other solutions. Same thing's going on in Pennsylvania and a lot of other areas of the world. Horse barns right now, if you even want to put up horse barns in populated areas, the first thing you have to deal with is where's that manure going to go? Yet in our technology, it's one of the most valuable pieces. So I could actually be paid by those people to bring it in, become a valuable piece of our cost of goods, if you want to call it that, uh, blend it with some animal tissue, turn around, pelletize it, sell it out to the farms. And uh, you got a great win for everybody. They got rid of it. I got to use it. I turned it into a value-added product, and then I made soil better. Yeah, so basic economics, and I'm not trying to run your business here, but basic economics would say, all right, what's the biggest problem and what's the easiest thing to implement? I mean, you just mentioned the horse farm. That seems like it'd be easy to implement. Like, all right, you're putting up a horse barn. All we need is this burner or whatever it's called. I'm not going to get too technical in that. But then the biggest problem being the manure. Those are those are an easy, it sounds like easy, to implement solution, which is get something to a horse barn, for example. And something that is a grave problem, which is how much manure comes out. Uh, how come they're not getting attention or why is there not more of a focus on that? Manure management is a term I heard for the first time today, folks. I assume that I you know, wouldn't be stupid enough to not understand that it's a problem, but I did not know that there was a manure management you know, protocol. So is that correct? That though the, the biggest problem coupled with the thing that we can do, the that we can fix the simplest, is that a direction that you, know, you feel that America is heading? Or you hope so, I guess, because you're in the business. We're building toward that end, yes. I mean, it's it's a huge problem and a huge opportunity both for us. This manure management thing has been around for a long time. Maybe you've driven down a highway or seen a chicken farm and they'll have these really large tea shed kind of things where they store manure under roof. Well, that was put out and paid for largely by the USDA because through the years, they've been trying to figure out how to keep that runoff off the field. So they actually paid for most of these chicken houses to put these up. They're, they're serious about it. I can tell you right now, because I've talked to the USDA, they're working on that next level of manure management. What can we do beyond putting it under a shed? Can we dry it? Can we pelletize it? What else can we do with it? I've actually had a visit from the USDA in those regards here at our place in Madisonville. So the, the problem, the, the challenge is none of this moves fast. And it takes a lot of money and it takes a lot of time to change people's minds and, and get them to understand the opportunity. But several years into it, things are coming around finally where people are getting more engaged. I won't go into those details, but it's happening little by little. Well, it sounds like you're passionate about you know each of these projects, which is a, you know, an important part of culture to keep things moving in the right direction. And you know, I, I love to hear the these things that I didn't even know were problems that exist, much less ways to fix them. So what are the, you know, who are the people around you 
or what are the businesses that you would like to know what it is you do that need to be hearing this? Is it does, is this anybody who creates waste? They need to know or be thinking about what to do. So let me ask a simpler question. If I create a lot of waste, is it first nature to know that I need to be doing something with that waste? Or is it just, I don't even worry about it? Most businesses that create a waste stream, they have to first jump into the business knowing what they're going to do with that. For instance, a sawmill, you think they make their money selling boards. The first thing they have to think about is how am I going to get rid of my boards, my slabs, and my sawdust? Because if it builds up, my property gets choked up and I can't do anything. So they know there's a problem. The chicken houses know there's a problem. The horse farms know there's a problem. And it's becoming more difficult for them to solve that problem. So if they knew there was a solution or an opportunity, we would definitely fit into that piece of things here. Um, so yes, that's there. And our business model is going to work with them where it makes sense. As you said, know, we're infantile in, in the, the size that we're going, but the raw, raw materials are everywhere. It's just how do we best take care of them, work with the right people, for instance, I get chickens from one guy in particular here, and he would like to get me more, and his neighbors would like to send me his chickens because they don't like messing with them. Composting is not fun. It's ugly. It's smelly. It takes a long time. They, I'd show up with a trailer and haul them off. You know, he, he loves what we do. So that's the opportunity. They, they, there is a problem, and we can work together and both win in this situation. Yeah, that is – I mean, that, that's a – I anticipate this being a huge problem, and I'm you know, glad to see that there's people out there who are working to find the solution. Whenever I consider myself in the middle of a lot of businesses, and I don't, you know, I don't have a lot of conversation about what do you do with your waste. I have on, you know, certain oils and things of that nature, but not usually chicken byproducts or you know, some of the things that you mentioned today. Not even to get into the the farming aspect and the problem that you know you've you've brought up today. So, you know, let's talk. If there was one solution that you just don't understand how everybody doesn't know we need to fix this right now, and maybe it's something you've already mentioned, but, and hopefully it's not, what is something that, geez, people, you need to understand that we can fix this problem and here's how it works. Why doesn't everybody just work, you know, wake up and listen to what myself or the people around me are, are talking about? Might not be the answer you would expect, but, um, it really comes down, the simplicity is we just need to feed soil. Uh, it's an education problem that I'm running into across the board, even with some of your high-level people in the agronomy world. There are two kinds of nitrogen. One is the one we all use today, you know, the stuff from the Haber-Bosch technology I was telling you about that feeds our plants kind of like crack cocaine, but it's also the detriment of the soil in that that type of nitrogen only feeds plants and not soil. So we need to educate people there to fix soil. You've got to have a different kind of nitrogen to do that. Um, and it would be one that comes from natural resources like feather meal and cotton seed uh, meal, cotton seed meal, that kind of thing. But they're all very expensive. So the question becomes, how do we do this at scale finding organic type nitrogen from organic materials like manures and whatever at the right ratios at the right cost. And 
nobody has ever, to our knowledge, looked at this solution of blending the carbon and the nitrogen from animals to create this solution. Just never been done. We're patent pending on it, open for an answer any day. Um, it's what it's going to take to feed it. That's a huge jump from an education standpoint. People don't, that you just see their eyes blaze over when you talk about two different kinds of nitrogen, two different kinds of carbon. They don't know, and most of them don't care. So, but it is the key to making this all happen. So, we're doing the work to make it possible using waste streams. And then, I mean, I'm finding I have to create a whole series of videos to teach this technology one bite at a time. You know, how do you eat an elephant? Well, you got to start easy and work your way into it before they finally understand it. And that includes our farmers. They don't know. They're just doing what the extension office tells them to do. So that's my challenge. Yeah, no, that, that is exactly the answer I was looking for. More often than not, I mean, in the business I'm in, we run into the same problem where it's like, if you just understood that this plus this equals this, and you know, you're changing things, but it's not changing for the worse. Just because you hear change doesn't mean negative. So if what you're saying is, listen, just learn how it works and you know, do your research to find out if you believe the things I'm telling you, but, but there right. is a solution. So, yeah, I did. That's, that's good to know. This is, this has been very eye opening to me. So maybe you've already mentioned this, but is there anything in, in you know, particular to your business um, or this whole, in addition to what you just mentioned that, you know, we wish you knew about it. You know, you mentioned it's expensive, you know, you would think that, man, there's gotta be ways to, to make this work as much money as they throw at BS problems. There's not money to throw at big, big things like this, you know, is it properly funded or what are the, you know, what are the areas? And I'm not just talking about the entrepreneurial world. I mean, the, this whole big picture problem, you know, is it properly funded? Does it need a political attention? Does it just need entrepreneurial attention? You know, is there something we need to understand more? Well, in our world of true entrepreneurialism, you know, we do what we got to do and we figure out the resources. We're a small company. There's like six or seven of us here right now making these sawmills, making the equipment. I mean, we're making CBD because we got into the hemp world, all that kind of stuff. So we're stretched thin and our resources are tight. Going for grant money, which we're actually pretty pregnant with opportunity that way is nice, but it takes time too. more resources. So our bigger challenge is connecting with the right people investment wise without having to spend all our time chasing that. So in the meantime, we keep plugging along. Um, grants would be great. The right people are coming along little by little. And we're very cautious about that. I'm not going to just jump in with whoever. Um, it's got to be the right people. We need to be equally, equally yoked with whoever we work with. So um, that's our challenge really is the amount of time and resource it takes to get it done at the level we're at because third party testing, for instance, with the schools and with the farmers and internationally, I mean, I've been on the phone with uh, people in Europe this morning wanting to do the same thing. It all takes time and money and confirmation to get academics to believe it. Um, Cause honestly here in the U S that's really where we have to go because you send your kids to school to be agronomists, to become your extension offices, officers who talk to the farmers. That's what they do. I've actually taught at Murray State University, been invited to teach these. The kids love where we are, but that's one class that I've done, whereas everybody's still being taught old technology. And you know, getting our foot in that door and getting this out there is a challenge, but we're working on it. We will get there. 
awesome. Scott and I give you accolades for making this um, as easy to understand as you have whenever it's got as many technical and Lord knows how many chemical and whatever pH scale or whatever you've done today, you've made it easy to understand. So great work on that. Why don't uh, we'll also drop it in the show notes, but tell us how we can find you guys, you know, website, you know, email address. If anyone has an interest in this or, or wants to know how to do business with you, where do they, where do they go? We are organolock.com, O-R-G-A-N-I-L-O-C-K.com. You can find me at Scott at organolock.com. And our business number here is 270-326-2006. Awesome. Thank you for being on, Scott. And then for those of you listening out there, this is exactly what we want to highlight. Things like this that are highly technical, that are very big nationwide or worldwide issues that are being tackled right here in your own Kentucky backyard. I doubt a lot of people knew that this was happening just in, I think it's actually Nebo, isn't it? Or the Madisonville, yeah. <laughs> Madisonville, Kentucky. So we're glad to highlight these businesses. We want those of you who are interested to please reach out to Scott. If you've got additional questions or information you would like on this particular subject, this is obviously a very big problem that we you know, want to continue to talk about. So thanks for being on today, Scott. Uh, and sure. I think that wraps up another episode of built in the bluegrass and thanks for the discussion today, guys. I appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Built in the Bluegrass. We hope you're leaving this episode with a better understanding of the cool stuff made in Kentucky. If you haven't done so already, make sure you're subscribed to the show. This way you'll get notified as new episodes become available. Until next time.